Welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path, a podcast where we've set out to bust the myth that physicians can't venture outside the traditional clinical or research career path. My name's Shad, and I'm an MD and Harvard MBA interested in healthcare investing and innovation. And my name is Alex. I'm an MD finishing up an MBA at HBS, a master's at Stanford, and a PhD in computer science at Oxford. And I'm interested in healthcare investing and entrepreneurship. Our guest today is Dr. Olivia Kavlan. She's Chief Corporate Development and Strategy Officer at Alchemab Therapeutics, a biotech company developing novel products for patients with hard-to-treat diseases by harnessing the power of naturally protective antibodies. Olivia holds an MD in medicine and a BSc in pharmacology from Bristol University, where she graduated with top first-class honors. Olivia, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the show. Olivia? Thanks for joining us and welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Alex and Shad. It's a real pleasure to speak to you today. And I think what you're doing is so incredibly important that I'm delighted uh, to be interviewed. So thanks a lot. Thanks, Olivia. You've had a very interesting journey so far. To put things into perspective for our audience, can you talk to us a bit more about your story, perhaps your upbringing, your journey towards medical school, and eventually your journey beyond the traditional clinical career path? Sure. So um, as you can probably hear, I'm English. Um, I'm kind of born and bred Surrey girl. I was part of, um, I've got I've got three sisters, so I came from quite a competitive uh, family. Um, it was also a very medical family. So my mum, she's a, a primary care physician. Uh, my, my grandmother, she was a psychiatrist. My grandfather was an ENT surgeon. And for me, it was really a question of what, what do you want to do? And without much inspiration, it was, well, medicine. Um, so I, uh, I I started off thinking, well, you know, I'm going to do medicine. I'm going to be the same. But, you know, part of a driver of being one of four girls is you want to be different. Um, you don't want to be the same as everyone else. One of my sisters is actually um, currently a medical oncologist as well. So I wanted to be different from everyone. And I think in life, one of the things that help guide you are your role models. And, and actually, you know, down in, in Surrey in, in, in the UK, there, there are not that many role models. But my mum had this best friend who um, she, she was a medical student with her. She went on to become a primary care physician. She then went into Pfizer and she headed up this function in Pfizer called medical affairs. And I, I didn't really know what that was. I didn't know what medical affairs did. But what I did know was that she had this amazing yellow Porsche Boxster car and I wanted to do that. So I was one of these slightly strange, um, you know, medical students who didn't really want to do medicine, but did medicine because I wanted to go into big pharma. And my mantra through my life was always, I want to help people by making medicines. Um, and what I think is kind of cool is that right now I can say that because I'm, you know, I'm now in biotech. My teams make medicines. They do incredible things that every day I'm absolutely amazed about. It's actually not what I do hands on, um, but I really, you know, I'm here to enable them. So in a roundabout way, um, I am doing uh, what that role model showed me a long time ago. Thank you, Olivia, for sharing that. I think the, the point of role models is so important. And this is certainly something that Shad and I saw as we were making the decision to go off the beaten path. And I think that's partly inspired our podcast to increase the access of our audience to role models who have pursued career paths that perhaps audience members want to pursue. So uh, thank you so much for sharing that. Perhaps I want to shift gears a little bit to Alchemab. So almost a year ago, 
Alchemab announced the completion of a 60 million pound Series A financing round for the development of its platform for identifying disease-modifying antibody therapeutics. You've built the company from scratch, uh, working up the ideas and securing the first six million pound syndicated investment. And in just seven months, the company was able to identify several promising leads and made a major contribution in the development of antibody treatments for COVID-19. You've described the company's style as unbiased drug discovery, in which basically you identify the targets. You use the model of the body to identify the targets rather than dictating what those targets are. And so it seems to me it's like a bottoms-up approach rather than a top-down approach, which is very interesting. So really keen to know kind of your thoughts on how you think about Alchemab, what was the process through which you came up with the idea, and where do you see the opportunities and the future? So if you can share a little bit of that. Sure. So a lot of questions in there, um, and I'm going to try and unpack it. So um, this is this came out of VC. Um, and I was, um, in some ways, I was really fortunate to be working at SV Health Investors um, alongside um, this phenomenal scientist um, and actually clinician, someone that you should speak to also called Human Ashrafian. Um, and Human is a real ideas guy. And, and he came up with this concept. It was probably about three years ago. It's always um, kind of uh, pinned by JPM. He kind of goes to JPM. He creates these incredible ideas. And he came up with this concept about you know, convergent antibodies and different individuals, um, you know, come up with the same antibody through a process of somatic hypermutation and self-selection. Um, and they must be driving that antibody um, for the same purpose, which is it binds to the same epitope on the same antigen. So if we take that back, what really the concept here is, um, you know, if you have individuals who are resilient to disease um, and let's say, you know, pancreatic cancer, long term survivors, they survived for seven or eight years when, you know, very sadly, people survive for, for one year. The hypothesis is that there is something driving that survival. And one of the reasons for that survival could be the immune response and specifically the B cell immune response. Now, this hypothesis is not going to be the same in all different cases, um, but we believe that in certainly some cases and certainly some cancers and also in some neurodegenerative conditions, this is the case that resilience to disease or you know, super response to checkpoint inhibitor therapies is driven by the immune response. So what we do is we look for common antibodies um, in these resilient people that you don't see in the normal disease group and you don't see in the healthy control group. We identify those antibodies um, using quite a sophisticated computational biology approach. Uh, we then take them out of the body, we express them, and as part of that, we have to computationally pair light chains to them, which again uses a machine learning approach. We then run them against a range of very advanced proteomic screens and more classical drug discovery techniques, such as phage display. We work out what are the antigens and specifically the epitopes that we're binding to. And then we work out functionally, are these antibodies doing anything in the body? And so what we have there is this way of, you talked about unbiased. This is identifying targets by the body telling you what is most important as opposed to starting with a target and then trying to drug it with an antibody. And I am fortunate to be working alongside you know, people like Jane Osborne. So Jane Osborne is an absolutely phenomenal 
uh, you know, drug discoverer and developer. She started off at CAT, went to Medi. Well, she didn't go to Medi. It was acquired by Medi, which was acquired by AZ. She has this you know, incredible history of drug discovery and development and, and actually a broad network of folk that really know what they're doing in this space in a way that I you know, really, really would never have known and still don't know. Um, and, you know, some of these members of her team have come alongside her. We've built a team alongside that. And watching what they do to discover these targets and work out functionally what are these antibodies doing and discovering that, yes, you know, the body is actually creating, um, you know, protective antibodies in these situations has been, you know, an absolutely amazing ride over the last two and a half years. So to talk a bit more about, you know, from concept to company, um, you know, there was a lot of work at the, at the get-go in venture capital um, to, to really make sure that the thesis was correct. This is, this is different from most other biotech companies in that as opposed to coming from a platform that you spin out of an academic team or as, as opposed to being a couple of assets that you spin out of a, a pharmaceutical organization, this came from a concept. So we had to you know, build everything from the get-go. We had to work up what was the proof of concepts that we were going to do? What's the literature evidence that supports this theory? How are we going to tackle this um, you know, unwieldy AI problem that actually sits at many different facets of what we do? And who are the amazing people that we need to bring alongside us to help build this? And how can we bring them in? Because you know, how can you bring someone into a concept and you're not even sure if it's going to start or fail? Um, uh, so, so really, you have to create the story and the hook and the belief and, and really entice them into something that really could fail at any point. And it's amazing because I look back now and I think, my God, you know, at the beginning of this, I didn't really realize how much risk was involved. Um, you know, and I, and I actually also look, I mean, right now is a fascinating time in the biotech markets because, you know, the, clearly the markets have plummeted. Um, you know, people are being much more thoughtful about deploying capital. You know, you mentioned, Alex and Chad, you want, you want to do company creation. Now is a time when, you know, some quite a few of these VCs have a lot of dry powder waiting to go, waiting to invest. But the challenge is what's the exit for those companies and how long will it be? So there is another layer of thinking that VCs will have before they actually put capital into company creation when, you know, the the resulting product is going to take at least uh, three years plus um, to, to come through. So, you know, it's a really interesting time now. So in some ways, two and a half years ago, we were fortunate because we were still riding the wave of, you know, pretty good capital markets, um, pretty exciting AI capabilities, and a lot of technologies like, you know, Illumina sequencing um, that had come through that could enable us to do this type of approach. Thank you so much, Olivia, for sharing that. I'm honestly fascinated by the concepts that you've applied in Alchemab. And I, I imagine how scalable this approach is, especially with all the innovations that are coming in the biotech market. For example, like if you look at what Biotechni is doing with all like the automation tools for like the different assays and different experiments. If you look at like the high throughput workflows that we can build in biotech and how we can integrate AI into that. So like, it's fascinatingly interesting. One of the recent guests that we had is Martin Bittner. He founded a company called Arcturus and basically they're trying to create like a cloud 
lab really, but what they're creating is an automated basically CRO. And Martin mentioned that one of their biggest values is creating symmetrical data where you're doing each experiment every time the same way. And therefore you're removing that human bias and you're increasing the value of your data, which would enable you to build very effective AI and predictive algorithms. I'm really fascinated by the concept and the interesting technologies that you have um, at Alchemab. And I think the value of the story that you've mentioned is so powerful because as Chad and I are thinking about company creation, one of the most important things that we care about is talent. And we really find out that to attract the best talent, you need to have like a very powerful story that kind of speaks to the intrinsic motivations of people rather than the extrinsic motivations. I'm curious to know your thoughts on how has your medical experience contributed to your role at Alchemab? Um, well, let me start with uh, let me start with the AI. You started on AI, so I just want to give you my perspective on AI now. Um, I will be straight. I, I have not listened to Martin Bittner's uh, po- podcast. And I don't know too much about the company, but I wanted to be clear on how I think about AI um, in that AI is you know, multifaceted, hugely nebulous. You can use it in all sorts of areas of biotech, healthcare tech, you know, everywhere. Every biotech company that is created today um, has a bioinformatician who probably has renamed themselves a computational biologist. They will at least have that, you know, if not a full AI team. Now, I think you can, well, I certainly, in order for me to structure this and help me understand this, I divide AI into the two camps. One is broadly you know, health tech, um, healthcare enabling type, type of technologies, so the telemedicine type of approaches. And then the second camp for me is then this um, drug discovery type camp. And those are the two camps that I really know about. Now, the telemedicine type camp is is fascinating because, you know, being at coming from McKinsey, we spent a lot of time in, you know, the 2010s type era looking at telemedicine and seeing it fail, seeing it not being applied, seeing it not being used. Um, and suddenly in the last five, six years, it's really taken off. And you have all sorts of uh, different companies like ZocDoc and one that I, well, a favorite of mine is Nye Health, um, doing all sorts of different things with, um, with, with health tech. And I think that is one field which is fabulous and totally enabling, and it will still take time for primary care physicians and hospitals physicians to adopt that technology. Uh, but I think it's certainly, you know, even the pandemic has certainly accelerated that. And that is an exciting thing to watch. On the other side, you have AI drug discovery. Now, I think this is, you know, post the work of AlphaFold, so AlphaFold 2, RosettaFold, the publication of uh, the ability to um, you know, discover protein structures based on sequence. This has moved the field forward hugely um, in terms of our ability to entirely in silico identify new targets and therapeutics. However, we are not there yet. Um, and, you know, that type of technology is, is great, but it still can't define the structure of very complex proteins such as antibodies. It can't define protein-protein interactions yet. Um, They're working on it, but it's not there. 
But what this does help you uh, envisage is a world in which, you know, if you could identify structures and, you know, 100% based on sequence, uh, and you can, you know, you can design uh, in silico a, a small molecule, um, and you can then model the interactions between the two. There are a whole host of different types of companies you can start to build out of this. And I think the, the, the power is incredible. Now, to be able to do that, you need to have wet lab capabilities. You need to have traditional drug discovery capabilities. And I think it's really important to remember that we will never stop needing these types of capabilities. And actually, I personally think the way forward is to have AI-enabled novel target discovery as opposed to um, you know, AI target discovery with a bit of wet lab capabilities. Now, this is a rapidly emerging field um, and it will change and I will be proven wrong, I'm sure. Uh, but I think it is one that is incredibly interesting to watch. And then taking that back to, you know, what do you think about what you want to do as a, as a medical student? There is a whole array of opportunities opening up out there for, for medical students. So I, you know, I went into medicine, as I said before, not not wanting to be a doctor. I, you know, I did a couple of years of medicine uh, working in a hospital. And actually, that was fabulous because it enabled me to, I would certainly say, consolidate my understanding of medicine. It was able to consolidate my understanding of how to treat patients, what some of the challenges are in healthcare, how the systems operate, what's good for patients, what's bad for patients, what's important about the role of preventative medicine. Um, and, and all of this I use on an everyday basis um, in my work at the moment. Um, so I use, you know, I, I have to look up a list of diseases and because I have a medical background, I know what Charcot-Marie-Tooth is and I know what Lee-Fraumini syndrome is. I know what all of these, you know, interesting and strange syndromes are and I know how to apply them to the business context in, in, in which I operate now. And bringing this back to trying to understand, well, what are the opportunities for medical students? I actually think that AI, computational biology, being able to code, which is not something that I can do, is so incredibly important to um, not just medics education, but also to you know, scientists education, because that is certainly where I think uh, this, you know, th this field is going. Yeah, no, Olivia, I appreciate that. And I think like that's spot on. I think from the technical capabilities perspective, I just want to follow up on the healthcare applications of AI. I think what we've seen that from a technical perspective of building an AI algorithm that performs really well, like we can do that. We have various different methodologies, various different algorithms. And if you look at the industry outside medicine, like the application of AI is really advanced. So for example, we can see Google or Microsoft already offering ML algorithms as a service. So for example, you want to do facial recognition, you don't need to train your own algorithm. I can just give you an API and you can pay per image. So I think like in terms of the technology, it's there, but what's not there yet is the product market fit. Like, are we solving the important problems that clinicians attribute value to? And are we making the lives of clinicians and the outcomes of patients better by the correct application of this massively powerful technology that we have? But just going back to the point of ability to code and the value that medical doctors can provide. So I'm doing my PhD in computer science and our lab 
focuses on healthcare machine learning. So it's a combination actually of like medical doctors and computer scientists. And I think the flow of ideas and these interdisciplinary teams is so important because as a medical doctor, like I've learned how to code. It wasn't easy, but I've learned it. But I will never be as efficient as someone who's done an undergrad in computer science. But what I have, what a computer scientist will not be able to replicate is that experience with the patient and that medical knowledge. And so like that flow of information is so important. I just wanted to reiterate this point based on my experience. So thank you for sharing that, Olivia. Perhaps the last question from my side is about mentorship and mentors. Almost all of our guests so far have talked about how vital their mentors have been in helping them navigate of the traditional clinical path. So who were some of your personal mentors that helped you along the way? And you've mentioned the friend of your mother. And what is your personal approach to mentoring, let's say other dogs, and how can our audience approach mentorship and benefit from it? So I think mentorship, well, role models um, and mentorship are, are two different things. And, you know, to be clear, I, I didn't have really mentorship through my medical degree. A lot of it was making that up on my own. And that doesn't matter. Uh, I want, you know, if you don't have a mentor, if you don't have someone who um, you think can guide you in the right way into something that is completely novel, uh, that doesn't matter. It shouldn't stop you. Uh, so to be very clear from the get go, that is a, a real distinction that's really important for people to be aware of. Now, I have had mentors, but I would more consider them to be you know, none have, have actually stayed with me permanently by my side my whole career. You know, in a way, you need to be selfish about your mentors and you, you take from people what you need from them at different points in time. Uh, and so, you know, I, I saw this person as a, I think it was an eight-year-old at the time, and, and, and I watched her. And I think it's fine for you to watch people and learn from them from afar. And then going into McKinsey, you know, I had you know, a range of different, I, you know, I would call them mentors now, but at the time I wouldn't call them mentors. You know, they were friends who I would have a chat with and they would help guide me. And they were, there were a whole range of different people. So, you know, there was a, there's one called Tamara Raja who uh, set up her own company actually after called Live Better With. Uh, and, and she was CEO of that company. She was big on entrepreneurship at McKinsey. You know, the thing for me at McKinsey about entrepreneurship was that I, I, I just couldn't I couldn't think what I'm going to I'm going to make. You know, I don't have enough intrinsic capabilities to make something of my own, which was part of my problem that I was there for. You know, someone else is, is Vivian Hunt. So Vivian Hunt is a, you know, uh, quite a, she was at the time she was head of the UK and Ireland office at McKinsey. She is a phenomenal supporter of women. Um, she is a, really a phenomenal leader who you know, inspires you to go on through the ups and downs and just believe in yourself, which is which is so important. Um, you know, going into to venture capital, people like Ruth McKernan, who was formerly CEO of um, Innovate UK and um, then a venture partner at SV, you know, again, incredibly inspirational in terms of her ability just to get stuff done. And, um, you know, she's got a, an excuse, no shit type attitude to, to making stuff happen. She's just fabulous. And then, of course, a big person for me now has been, 
you know, the rest of the leadership team at, at Alchemab. So I work alongside, you know, Doug Traco, who is, again, you know, 30 years plus um, working in biotech, building and exiting companies who has reams of experience. I work alongside young Quan, who, um, you know, he was a PhD from MIT. He was Harvard graduate. He went to Biogen. He was at Memento, which he sold to J&J last year. Um, and, and absolutely incredible sets of experience. And then, of course, Jane Osborne, who has, has been you know, a, a good friend and guided me um, over the last few years. So in funny ways, I, I wouldn't, you know, they don't know, they, they probably don't know that my mentors, in some ca- cases, McKinsey used to say, you need to go and tell people they're your mentors and will, will they mentor you? And I always found that to be quite an awkward you know, it was a bit of an awkward conversation to have because you felt like, uh, you know, you felt like you were asking them to do something else on top of all the busy things that they were doing already. But what I would probably do is say, you know, who's my who's my executive board? Who are the people in my mind who right now will support me no matter what I'm doing? And if I have a certain question, will guide me about how to take that forward. And that's really how I've thought of as mentors. Olivia, thank you. I think the idea of taking different bits of knowledge from people, also something that I uh, find myself doing, and this idea that your mentors change over time is also perhaps something that Chad and I got exposure to, because when we were in the clinic, our mentors were mainly clinical. And when we went outside of that, the range of people from whom we get advice has completely changed. And I certainly appreciate you mentioning Vivian Hunt. I remember attending one of her sessions and I'm a big fan of her work on diversity and especially the idea of to make an organization diverse, you need to make it diverse from the top level because people look at the top level as a representation of the organization. Olivia, this has been a fascinating conversation. Like I've learned a lot and I'm going to give the mic over to Shad for a couple of questions from his side. Great. Thank you so much, you know, Alex and Olivia. Fascinating conversation so far and a lot to really reflect on. I really appreciated one of the last points that both you and Alex made about diversity and inclusion. And that was really going to be the focus of my next question. Olivia, in 2020, you were included in Miranda Weston Smith's list of 30 movers and shakers in biobusiness alongside really, really incredible people in in the healthcare space and many other women who are changing the face of the industry. While women, you know, continue to work for leadership positions, there's still a lot, obviously, to overcome. So my question is, what are some of the difficulties women have faced and are still facing today? And and how can we work to overcome them? And what advice would you have for the female audience members uh, of our podcast uh, who are listening on on how to approach their careers and overcome some of those barriers along the way? So this is a really interesting question. And every woman will have their own perspective of the answer here. From from my perspective, there has never been a better time to be a woman. And yes, there are inherent challenges, uh, but there are inherent challenges for everyone. And yes, in certain situations, and quite a lot of situations, it's, it's harder for women. But I've always looked at that as being an opportunity. And I think that's the way that you know, every woman out there should try to see it. So, you know, coming from a family of girls, the funniest thing is that I I never realized that there was any kind of challenge of, of, of being women. And indeed, 
the first few years at McKinsey before I had kids, it was, you know, I was like, I'm on, you know, I'm, I'm just as bright, uh, if not brighter, because everyone's a bit, you know, um, self-supporting at McKinsey uh, as all these other people. There's, you know, there's no reason why it should be any different for me than from anyone else. But you know, as I got more senior in the organization and, you know, due to biology, I, I had my babies and I had to take time off. And due to these, you know, almost unavoidable situations for women, you do have to step back and you do have to spend time with your kid. And you know, through no fault of the organization's own, it does mean you at that point lose clients. You lose the thread of projects that you've taken on. It does mean that you have to come back and you have to rebuild those. And it's frigging hard. You know, when you've seen maybe a male colleague who's picked up the client that you had to drop and taken them forward and built a whole new platform around, you know, something that you were doing, it's hard. And that's what these mentors are for. Uh, That's what this drive that you need to have is for and that's what this this feeling around well there's an opportunity there because actually you know they picked up something on on you know a legacy project when the world is moving on now there's a whole new area of you know AI drug discovery and quantum black um, that you can move into so that's an exact example of what I did I moved into quantum black and thankfully I was in an organization that supported me in picking up the challenge and running with something new. Now, that's not always the case. Um, and I think it's up to every woman on their own to decide, you know, what are they willing to put up with? Um, and again, you know, you, you mentioned Alex, Vivian Hunt. You need to find leaders like Vivian Hunt. And and often it's not a woman. It's, it, you know, often it's a man who will be incredibly supportive of you, not because you're a woman, but because you add value to what they're doing. So yeah, again, it's it's up to women on their own. Uh, it's not an immediately solvable problem. It will perpetually continue to be something that women need to look at. So you phrased, Chad, you, you had this interesting phrase, what are the what are the challenges still facing women? I mean, in a way, I, I just don't know that we will ever be able to overcome you know, the myriad of challenges that are faced in many different ways. We can certainly make it better. um, And there are all sorts of areas of discrimination that need to be addressed uh, and biases, to be honest. And it will take a step at a time. And it will also take women to stand up for women, but it will take time and, and that woman on their own to be, you know, quite brave about that. No, I appreciate the the point you're making, Olivia, and it makes a lot of sense. One thing I wanted to hone in on was you mentioned sometimes mentors or people who support you may not be women, it may be men. And I think that that's something I can sort of speak to just from a more personal perspective. I think that acknowledgement as men or as allies that there's certain groups of people, doesn't have to be along gender lines, but it could be along ethnic lines or socioeconomic lines or a variety of different lines, uh, nationality, things like that the acknowledgement that there's certain groups of people that deal with certain challenges that you may not have to deal with. I think that even that acknowledgement can be like maybe 20% of the way there because some folks sometimes just don't even acknowledge that fact. I think acknowledging that, you know, I'm in a position where I'm not having to make certain sacrifices and that helps me, you know, either get ahead or not get ahead. I think those are frank conversations that are really uncomfortable uh, to have, but uh, are worth having in professional circles. So, so really appreciate you sort of opening up and really being frank about some of those. Shad, can I 
Can I just add to that? Because what you're saying there is that as a leader, we, you know, as leaders, we each and every one of us need to recognize the strengths that diversity brings. If I look at Alchemab at the moment, we are incredibly diverse. So diverse, um, you know, ethnically, um, diverse on a gender level. You know, we are diverse in all sorts of ways. And, and that is something that I am really proud of. Um, and I'm really proud of the team, you know, the leadership team, really supporting um, both the women and men, absolutely regardless of any kind of bias. And I think that is so important. No, I, I really appreciate you mentioning that. And and I know you mentioned it, it was a big focus at other firms that you've worked in, such as McKinsey. And, you know, to be frank, it, it's probably not the case in most places where people work. You know, we obviously have the opportunity, the privilege to work at places like McKinsey or BCG or SV or Alchemat, and much of the population does not. And, and so I, I think even that insight and acknowledgement is, is something that's worth noting. Great conversation so far, Olivia. I think we're winding down here, but one question I had just to wrap things up is that, you know, there's no arguing that docs have long had a special vantage point from which they can see how societal factors affect health and, and vice versa. Uh, however, most of us haven't known really how to deal with that reality or think about how we can actually make a difference and expand the scope of our impact beyond the narrow tunnel of clinical medicine. So in your opinion, how can we alter medical training in a way that challenges the medical student to do more, to advocate for change and, and take the wheel. And as someone who's had quite the experience in areas beyond the clinical path, what, what final piece of advice would you have for our listeners, whether pre-meds, med students, residents, fellows, to sort of take the wheel and, and expand their scope of impact? Yeah, the first thing I would say is that, you know, going back to the original points, medicine is a fabulous uh, degree. So it gives you such an amazing breadth of capabilities and skills across you know, deep understanding of science through to leadership and empathy and you know systems. But I think it's really important to recognize that medicine does not mean you have to be a doctor. And you know, an interesting uh, concept I felt in certainly in the UK as I was a medical student was that it was it was you know it was it was said that I was moving to the dark side if I moved out of medicine and I was you know an embarrassment to the profession um, and I really think that that mentality needs to change. The reality is that medics are some of the you know some of the brightest people uh, with with huge leadership potential. And it's such a shame not to, to use that kind of leadership potential to create solutions, um, to, to make the world a better place in more ways than serving patients, which is an incredibly valuable thing to do if that's what you want to do. So the first point is don't feel locked into being a doctor just because you've done the degree. The second thing to say is that you cannot solve every problem. Um, you need to work out what is it that you want to do. And, you know, certainly for me, it was a laser focus on how do I get there? Um, how do I get to this thing of, of making medicines? And, and what are the stages of my career that I need to have to get there? You know, initially when McKinsey came about, I had no idea what McKinsey did. You know, again, I was this small, you know, high school girl from Surrey in the UK 
someone came along and told me, oh, you should go and work for McKinsey instead of going straight into pharma. And I, I the first time I heard of it, I said, that's ridiculous. You know, and then I, I opened my eyes, I, I looked at what it was. And actually, the great thing about, you know, management consulting firms like McKinsey is that they give you this phenomenal ability to be able to do some of the basic techniques that you need to have. So it's like a baseline set of or what we used to call a toolkit of capabilities that um, armors you with what you need to do to be able to go into any situation. So I can build a PowerPoint deck pretty quickly. I can do a, you know, I can do a model, an Excel. It's Excel now. I actually can't code, but I can build a pretty damn good Excel model. Um, you know, I can lead a meeting. I can run a, you know, workshop at the drop of a hat. All of these amazing capabilities um, helped me really start to understand the world um, and, and how you can then deploy these different skills with this kind of medical hat on. So I guess what I'm saying is that make sure when you come out, you choose where you want to go and you work out what the path is to get there. You often hear, or at least I hear of people who kind of serendipitously fall into amazing jobs and amazing opportunities. That's never happened to me. I'm not one of those people. Um, and maybe it will happen to some people. For me, it has always been about where do I want to go? Uh, what feels right? And what's going to enable me to get there? I really appreciate that point, Olivia. And just one thing to pick out of that is I remember one of our guests recently said that it kind of echoed a little bit of your point that pre-meds, these high school students are some of the most brilliant students in the country. They're driven, they're creative, they, they want to make a difference in the world. But then something happens when you enter medicine. And again, medicine's a very noble profession. Taking care of patients is very noble and, and it is a great thing to do. But people become a little bit more narrow in their understanding of what a doctor is, of what a physician is. And as you mentioned, in the 21st century, <laughs> you know, you can shoot for the moon. You can have a very, very broad understanding of, of the role of a physician in the 21st century. And I think a lot of people like yourselves and hopefully us are showing to people that we can actually do that. And the last point I wanted to make is within the whole broad spectrum of healthcare, taking care of patients in the hospital and in the clinic is a subset of that. But in order to be able to bring innovative therapies for patients, you need investors, you need scientists, you need consultants, you need all of these different people along the value chain to come in, work together in teams and deliver for patient. And the clinician can't do it on his or her own. And so I think understanding that from the perspective of a clinician is going to be very, very meaningful moving forward. So Olivia, this has been a, a fantastic episode, a lot of learnings for our audience members. To finish off, Olivia, you know, how can our audience members learn more about what you do and, and just follow the impact that you've had throughout your career? So for sure, follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, have a look at the Alchemab website because I still to this day think that what we do is, is fascinating. And the other thing that I would suggest is get subscriptions or at least, uh, you know, linked into some of these uh, publications like Fierce Pharma, Endpoints, they're all free. Uh, listen to some other podcasts like Biotech 2050, which I listen to is, is fabulous. And all of these really give you a view as to the biotech ecosystem, which you know clearly includes VCs, it includes big pharma, it includes finance, so banks, um, and, and of course the biotechs themselves. And for me, this is absolutely the most exciting place to be working. And certainly as a medic, I would recommend it to anyone. 
Great advice. Thank you, Olivia. And uh, thanks again for joining our show. Thank you. Thanks, Olivia. That was such a great conversation with Olivia. I really, really enjoyed that episode. I think, you know, there's so many takeaways, but I think my main takeaway is something that we've alluded to implicitly and explicitly multiple times. I think this episode really highlighted the benefits of thinking about a medical degree from the perspective of a platform rather than sort of predetermined path towards only clinical medicine. Because Olivia has been able to leverage her medical degree to, to have very, very broad success and impact. And her work has arguably touched you know, tens of thousands of patients, if not, if not more. And I think the mentality that exists in a subset of clinicians, again, not everyone by any stretch of the imagination, but in a subset of clinical medicine, especially academic clinical medicine, that mentality that anything non-clinical or non-academic or non-research oriented is sort of part of the quote unquote dark side, I think that's pretty destructive. It's tribal and ultimately I think it's not good for patients. I think, you know, fundamentally we need uh, physicians in high places of influence, whether it be in pharma or investing roles or, you know, as a CMO of a high growth startup, that's not only better for our profession, but more importantly, I think, you know, it's better for patients because we're well positioned to be advocates for our patients. But that's my takeaway and over to you, Alex. Thanks, Chad. That's a great one. I think about my takeaways from the conversation with uh, Olivia. I think one point that we've mentioned that for medical students and for early career professionals, there is a whole wide array of opportunities opening up now uh, to be involved in very interesting and novel emerging verticals in healthcare. And I think that refers to the point that, you know, disruption and innovation always creates massive opportunities. And if you are strategic about this, you can position yourself very well within those innovative disciplines. So think about it this way, you know, in established career paths, it takes decades for you to become an expert or an authority. So, for example, if we think about cardiology, it would take you multiple decades to become a world-renowned cardiologist or cardiac surgeon. Whereas in novel disciplines like AI, blockchain, synthetic biology, and other biotechnology slash digital health innovations, you can really rapidly rise up the ranks and become a recognized authority in a fraction of the time. If, of course, you put in the effort and the ethics of in your work within that discipline. You can see that reflected in success stories of really young people within those, uh, those novel innovative disciplines. I just wanted to kind of bring the attention of our audience to the point that, you know, if you're very early on in your career and you're trying to identify the vertical uh, that you want to focus on in addition to clinical medicine. I think being a little bit strategic about it and, and thinking very heavily about these dynamics of innovation and disruption uh, can go a very long way. I think that concludes our episode for today. For the audience out there, join us next episode for more conversations with really amazing physicians who ventured off the beaten path. And remember to follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Podcast. And to catch our latest podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts.